Welcome to the Peep Show podcast. News and stories from the sex industry. With Jesse and PJ Sage. Welcome back to another episode of the Peep Show podcast. This week, we bring you a recording from the panel Consent and Sexualized Leisure at AVN. Lynn Camella moderates this discussion about how consent is negotiated on the showroom floor with performers Katie Jane and Jessica Drake and scholars Barb Bruns and Paul McGinn. This episode of the Peep Show podcast is sponsored by Quick and Dirty Media. Are you an independent content creator, webcam model, or clip maker? Quick and Dirty Media can help you with your video editing and production needs at a reasonable price, allowing you to devote more time to creating your content. As a special offer for Peep Show podcast listeners, the first five content creators who submit a video for editing will receive their first order free. Make sure to use the promo code PeepshowPod. Find Quick and Dirty Media on Twitter at Quick Dirty Media or send an email to info at quickanddirtymedia.com. Quick and Dirty Media is proud to be an adult-friendly business. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Peep Show podcast. Welcome. So today we have a panel from AVN 2020, which took place all the way back in January. Yeah, it's been a minute. (laughs) But don't worry, it ages like a fine vintage wine. Yes. At least that's what we tell ourselves. No, I I mean, obviously we had a lot of like health issues going on between then and now. um, So we weren't able to get to it. But going back and listening to it has been really interesting because PJ's right. It is still really relevant because while we're not standing on the Explo floor anymore, uh, what the performers and the academics that were on the panel are talking about have much broader implications for how we interact as performers with fans, how we negotiate consent in our jobs. One of the funny things was that they were talking about was the way they didn't say many vids by name in the panel, but um, (laughs) 98.995% sure that they were talking about the mini vids booth, which you actually... Yeah, I worked at the mini vids booth this year. And one of the issues with the mini vids booth that was controversial was that it was really tall this year. Like, I don't know, you were like five feet above the fans. Yeah, it was like ridiculously tall. And I, and you know, this is one of the conversations that comes up in the panel, but, you know, there's safety measures that take place and putting performers up on risers is one of them. But that actually <laughs> was made it much more difficult for people like me, people who aren't really big stars to even like interact with the expo goers, with the pe- the fans and the people who've come to the expo at all. We were so far removed from being able to talk to them. Yeah, I mean, that's like an interesting point, right? And I think actually kind of a point that maybe implicitly comes up in the panel because the performers who were on the panel are like mega stars and they're <laughs> awesome and they have lots of important things to say. But there are even more people at AVN who are you know, performers who are trying to build a name for themselves and, uh, you know, cam models, clip producers, other folks who are, you know, really trying to to build their business. 
And they're coming to the expo, not necessarily to sign autographs for a long line of adoring fans that they already have, but they're really like trying to hustle out there on the expo floor and meet new fans, right? And so like different performers who are going to the event have like different needs and different goals. And I think that's, you know, one of the the things that kind of comes up implicitly in this conversation is certainly something that we thought a lot about um, while yeah. listening to the panel. Yeah, because I mean, the whole conversation is about like safety and, and consent on the expo floors. But what I think a conversation that we need to have is how accessible do we need to be depending on like where we fall within the industry in order for it to even be worthwhile for us to come and work the floor like that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's tough for a site like many vids because they really do have such a huge range of, you know, they have people who have like a million Twitter followers and people who have like a thousand Twitter followers. Mm-hmm. And I think you even talked to Bella French, the CEO, a little bit about this uh, when you were working there. But I think it's a tension for the platforms. Well, yeah, and they actually brought this up in the panel. And I mean, we don't want to scoop the whole panel. But I mean, one of the things that I think Lynn and Barb brought up is that when you are so far removed from the floor, if you actually want to talk to somebody, it kind of is counterproductive because we I mean, I had this experience where people that I knew and I wanted to talk to, I actually in order to have any sort of meaningful interaction had to come out from around the booth and stand on the floor with the expo goers and talk to them from there, which is even less safe than if we were at floor level. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of things to consider. So what they were what they were looking at in this study that they're talking about in the panel is kind of the geography of expo floors and how how they're set up and what kind of considerations go into setting them up for performers, for fans. What's the best way to go about doing something? And I think that maybe one of the more interesting questions that wasn't addressed as head on, but is implicit in this conversation is that it depends on who you are and where you are in the industry. Yeah, for sure. I think what's important to recognize is that AVN and many of the other adult expos sort of came into being around the mainstream porn industry. Mm -hmm. And mainstream porn performers, of course, you know, work with other models, right? So they're Mm -hmm. as part of their job, but also historically have done feature dancing and increasingly are involved in escorting and, and other kinds of physical engagement with fans. So often they're pretty accustomed to physical interactions, whereas cam models, you know, historically have been solo performers. Many cam models don't even work with a partner on cam, right? They work with a dildo or they work with, Mm -hmm. you know, a fuck machine or something. So for many cam models, they're much more out of their element at a big expo where people are expecting to be able to touch them. So it's trying to like, I think, to some degree, educate the audience that different performers are going to be comfortable with very different things and they can't Mm -hmm. go in with assumptions Mm -hmm. about like what a performer is going to be comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was one of the really interesting things about this panel discussion too, is that, 
Um, Katie Jane and Jessica Drake talked a lot about the ways that they as performers uh, serve as educators as well and work to kind of change the cultural conversations around how you interact with performers. But I think one of the things that you're bringing up is important, which is that this isn't a one size fits all answer. It's something that, you know, as as performers, as educators, as um, sex workers, that part of the job is interfacing and teaching customers and clients and fans how to how to be in these spaces. Right. And that's especially true in a society where we do a pretty poor job of teaching consent in general. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, people are coming in without a lot of tools to understand and talk about consent. I mean, I do think that's changing to some degree because of social media, because of culture, but it's not really changing in institutions like in schools right Mm -hmm. so um, we have really a long way to go in talking about consent more thoughtfully Mm -hmm. in the broader culture yeah yeah yeah, and so that's why I think, you know, even though it's been it's been a minute, um, I do think that it's great to be able to, you know, platform these discussions and bring them outside of the outside of the expo because even people who were at AVN, there's so much going on there. It's not as if you could possibly go to all of the all of the events and all of the talks and all of the educational seminars. And so we're happy to give you like a little slice of what those look like. Definitely. And so we'll turn to the panel in a second. But before we do, I also just wanted to say our store is live and we've got stickers, buttons, shirts, all sorts of things that (laughs) you can buy, uh, which is really great because you can help support Peep Show by doing that. And our supplies are already dwindling, but we've placed some big orders for mugs and more shirts and tote bags and other things. Yeah, and, and as soon as production starts back up again, we will have those. So in the meantime, you know, feel free to look at what's what's there and there's more cool stuff that's coming. Yeah, and help uh, Peep Show stay on the air with your purchase. Yeah, so please go to our store. It's at peepshowmedia.com. I also want to say that we've been, uh, one of the things that we haven't talked that much about is that our new website that we have put up, we are using also to uh, do some feature interviews, to publish some essays. And so we've been we've been doing a little bit of that. I And also product reviews and recommendations. Yes, <laughs> which PJ does. And that's been really cool so if you haven't already please go check out our website because it's more than just the podcast we have a lot of new content up there that you know runs a range from interviews and essays and podcast episodes to product reviews and silly pictures so please check out the website it's peepshowmedia.com okay let's get to the panel all right let's get to it Thanks for joining us today. Jesse and I are dedicated to platforming sex worker voices and covering important political issues for those in the sex trades. But we can't do it without your help. If you believe in our mission, find us at patreon.com slash peepshowpodcast and show us some love. We're also seeking advertisers to help us grow. Thanks for helping us make Peep Show happen.
Thank you everyone for coming. Um, this panel is titled Consent and Sexualized Leisure at the AVN Show. And I'm going to be moderating this panel. My name is Lynn Camella. I'm an associate professor of gender and sexuality studies at UNLV, which is the university in Las Vegas that is literally a stone's throw away from the hard rock. And I'm really pleased to be moderating what I think is going to be a really interesting discussion about consent broadly, but more, even more specifically in a trade show space. Um, and we have the opportunity to not only hear from academic researchers who've studied this question, but also performers who have the lived experience of having to navigate the issue of consent in, in this space and in other spaces. So um, real quickly, I'm joined to my left by Jessica Drake, who is a contract performer for Wicked, as well as a, a certified sex educator. Katie Jane um, is the other performer who's joining us. And then our two academic researchers are um, Paul McGinn from the University of Western Australia, and Barb Brents, also from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And Paul is a geographer, and Barb is a sociologist, so that gives you a little bit of an idea of their disciplinary backgrounds. I think when most people think of the Adult Entertainment Expo, they likely picture loud music and free swag, big crowds and late night parties, and sexy performers signing autographs and posing for pictures alongside some of their most adoring fans. While all of this, as we know, is true, what people probably don't realize is that a number of academic researchers also descend on the expo every year, hoping to learn more about the social and economic organization of the adult industry, about the experiences of those who labor within it, and also about the fans and consumers who help, importantly, keep the industry afloat. Today, we'll pull back the curtain on some of the research that's been done on the Expo to discuss a recently published study by a team of researchers, two of whom are with us today, but not the whole team. And that study looks specifically at issues of consent and sexualized leisure at the AVN Expo. And the hope is that this discussion can be a springboard for larger conversations about consent, not only in the adult industry space, but also in the culture more broadly. So I'm going to be posing some questions to, to people, and we also hope that there's some organic conversation that happens amongst and between the panelists. And then we want to, importantly, leave at least 10 minutes for questions from the audience. Um, so we'll kind of you know, hang on for questions until the end, but we'll make sure that I, I cut these folks off so we can get to you. So I want to start um, just by asking Paul and Barb um, to talk a little bit about the study that they conducted, including why you were interested in learning more about the AVN Expo and its fans. If you can give us some of that background so people in the audience have a sense of the who, why, what of your research. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's really an honor to be up here with some great educators We're and scholars. We just have different venues in which we educate. It's a real, real pleasure to be here. The AVN Expo is a magical place in which to look at a microcosm of things that are going on in the world at large, 
gender relations, obviously gender fluidity, sexuality, the interplay between leisure, entertainment, and intimacy, um, all these things. I could go on and on. I'm a geeker scholar. Everything, it's, it's just a great place to look. So a number of years ago, some other folks and I got together to do a survey of fans and attendees at the expo just to see who goes. Uh, this was in 2000. Nine. 2009. 2009, we started doing this. And we've had an article or so published from that. And then a couple of years ago, Paul from Australia said, hey, let's do this again. And I've got some ideas. So um, we did. We did a survey that some of you probably answered. Uh, we gave to fans. And then we also did some observations. This particular article that we're talking about today looks at the negotiation of consent in the uh, AVN space. Our motivation was because, as you know, there's a lot of scholarly research that talks about the negative effects of pornography um, and that there's no possibility of having consent within the confines of the expo, but we know that as objective scholars to not be true. Um, so that's where this article is coming from. And um, we can talk about some of the findings, but I think it's a much more interesting discussion to have about how consent is negotiated, especially in this Me Too moment. And, and also, it's interesting to see how the AVN has changed over the years. So just jumping in really quick, I think it would be useful if just briefly you could discuss some of the results. You know, what did your research find in, you know, related to the topic of consent? And, and also, was there anything in your findings that surprised you, that you didn't expect to find, but you nonetheless found? I suppose if we look at the concepts of consent, there are, we identified kind of two main types of consent. That would be institutional consent, and that's really about how the AVN frames the rules of engagement and interaction, particularly between, obviously, performers and fans. So you'll notice, you know, when you register here, you have to sign a, a waiver form. When you walk into the main expo spaces, there's signage, and there's, this year there's two big, two, two signs that expel out very clearly what the rules are again, basically. So there's this institutional consent being reinforced throughout your experience as you move through this space. And then the second one, and this is, the, this is at the pointy end of, of this kind of interaction between performers and fans, is individual consent and how, you know, performers, so obviously we've got Jessica and Katie here, how do they negotiate, frame, manage consent, and also how they negotiate and manage people who transgress consensual boundaries which are framed institutionally and which these guys frame individually at that moment of interaction with fans. So that's the, that's the big headline, basically. I think that's the perfect segue to actually hear from the two performers on the panel in terms of both of those things. How, how do you negotiate and navigate the issue of consent at a trade show like AVN, but, you know, there's other trade shows, um, both at the institutional level, you know, the rules of engagement that the show writ large puts in place, but also those one-on-one -on -one encounters where something's maybe not comfortable or there's an interaction that is crossed bounds that you have not consented to. So if you want to talk anything that comes to mind regarding um, your experience. 
Okay, hi. Um, so I've had a very positive experience these expositions to date so far. Um, the main form of communication that I think most of us performers use is Twitter, and I make a point at the beginning of every show to be like, hey, you know, please come and say hello, but please don't touch us. And most of my fans are very supportive and understanding of that. The only time I've ever really had an issue is somebody would ask for a photograph, of which I'd consent, and in that split second when the camera flashes, they will go for a quick rope. And by the time you've realised it's over and they're already on the other side of the room, and you're just left feeling frustrated because you didn't even have time to say anything, and you know that photo is a deer in headlights. So it's, it's really tough. It's hard to enforce, because when someone does breach, you can't reprimand them for it. So, and I've been to a number of avians now. I'd like to first speak to what Paul said about institutional consent. The signs that are posted and the waivers that attendees have to sign are there for a reason. They're there because throughout the years we have had problems as performers. And I don't want to make light of the, or make, make the Me Too movement any stronger in the adult community. It's just that we're such public people, we get a lot more attention because of it. So we have that in place, and even though we have that in place, things do still happen. And it can be a really tricky situation, like Katie mentioned, as far as navigating it, because on... On one hand, you want to always be super accessible and very friendly and, and make fans happy, right? You want to please the fans because they're here to see us. And at the same time, it's really important to define our own personal boundaries because they're going to be different from person to person. And I think that's also super important to acknowledge in this conversation. So for me, it's definitely been a learning process. I also come from a place of privilege because I'm under contract with Wicked Pictures, a, a great company that is always taking care of their performers. So I have signed in booths for Wicked over the years in a more protected space. So maybe I've been up on a riser or I've had a security guard beside me. All that being said, I think that performers are exceptionally open to consent violations on a show floor like this because when fans see us naked performing on screen, they feel as if they can relate to us on even a more intimate level and maybe they know us better than they actually do just from having seen us have sex and seeing us on social media. So, so my method is, uh, like Katie, I normally go into a show by posting something, like I did. If anybody in this room follows me on Twitter, you saw what I posted yesterday. Um, I usually just tell people, hey, I'm super cool as long as you're cool. This means don't stalk me. This means like don't come after me in the hall or take pictures of me without my knowing. Um, if someone puts their hands on me during a photo or, and this happens not as an adult performer as well. So let's just be clear. Like it happens to women all the time. If they do that, I stop them immediately and I tell them that it's not acceptable to do that. And if they meet me with any form of resistance at all, I want them gone, period. And now because of ABN zero tolerance policy, that it makes enforcing that a lot easier for me to do. So also, if I see them doing it to somebody else, I'll be like, nope, don't do that. I'm very fast to be like, no, 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 no. One thing I wanted to say is, as a, as a sociologist, as in observing the, the dynamic in the big field, there's a set of norms that exist. The customers and the fans are there because they, 
they want to they want you to like them in some way and so they will behave i mean i've been coming here long enough that i'm no longer surprised but as a female out there in the world where i don't have the skills to manage consent like you all do i was surprised at how behaved quote unquote compared to what the outside world might think fans are and so I want to make sure that that's an important point because that, that dynamic, this is a sexualized leisure environment where everybody is pro-sex and, and can feel comfortable with their sexuality. And yet there are still boundaries that are recognized by most people. And, and I think the boundaries are in a little bit of a different place but this is what I'm interested in hearing you all talk about because obviously here, a fan putting their hands on your behind to take a photo and all that, or grabbing a breast, that's okay for many people if there's permission granted. And that's not necessarily something a guy would ask permission for elsewhere if they were gonna do that. That's a really good point. So the bat, yeah. I've had more people recently, I'd say in the past two years, when they do take photos with me, ask, may I put my hand around you? And I think that's really notable to mention. And yeah, it's the more common for fans to show respect here than I think a lot of people would expect out of the gate. I want to follow up on that because that is really interesting. I mean, Barb used that word norms, you know, which is a sociological term, but not only, but there seem to be like norms that, you know, fan, norms or rules that fans, for the most part, know and, and seem to, to follow, which is interesting. And I'm wondering how much that might have to do with the fact that there are people like Katie and like Jessica that are taking time to educate their fan base via social media, for example, before a show like this. Like, hey, I want you to come up and say hello. I want to take a photo with you. I want to meet you. However, you know, it's not a free-for-all. Like, my body's not here for your consumption, right? So it's not like that behavior exists in a vacuum. That behavior has kind of been educated, right? Or those fans have been educated. I just, you know, what are your thoughts about... This is a bigger question, and I do want to talk about this. What are your thoughts about the role of adult performers in not just educating fans, but playing an increasingly important role in, you know, prompting cultural conversations around consent more broadly? It's kind of a twofold question. You know, both of you mentioned social media, like putting it out there to your fans. Yeah, absolutely. Come, say hi. I'm down with that, but... Like, that's an intervention. That's a cultural intervention. You are educating your fans on your expectations. They can follow or not, but there likely be consequences if they don't, because now they can be ejected. But I think there's been an increased conversation, and there's articles out there, there's media articles out there where, you know, they focused on adult performers playing that key role in consent culture. Comments responses. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying and um, one of the reasons I got into the adult industry is whether people like it or not, porn is a form of education. We can argue whether it should be but we are in the front lines here and everything we do is very impressionable and for me my motive in this industry partly is to show that you can be a sexual woman and a respectful woman and the two don't have to be a contradiction. You can be intelligent, respectful, maternal, 
and still be this wonderful sexual creature who is worthy of love. And the privilege of being in this industry is being in the grassroots, the front lines, is I can say, hey, you know, we set a precedent here and you can infiltrate access to communities that perhaps being an educator in the academic world that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Thanks to social media, thanks to these conventions, you get a bigger reach and hopefully spread the message that we are worthy of respect. And I think most of the people here are such admirations of the industry. From my personal experience, most fans are just in awe of women, and I find they're more respectful than when I previously used to work in an office job <laughs> or when I used to work in retail. I used to work in a sex shop um, back in the UK, and men would get, be grabby when they're talking about lingerie and sex toys. And I find this industry, I've been respected far more than any other profession I've been in, ironically. No, and, and I think that that last point that you made really challenges a lot of the stereotypes that people have about um, fans or consumers or about the industry, right? That, you know, it is possible to garner respect, right? Because there's such stigma that many people hold for the industry and for consumers. Um, yeah, if I can just pick up on the... The first paper that came out of this research where we looked at um, male performer or male fans, what we call super fans. And these are, these are people, mainly men, who come to this expo but who consume pornography on a fairly regular basis, basically. And we basically tested in our survey their gender attitudes. Uh, because the perception is, is that porn super fans, or, you know, por well, porn fans in general, but then if you go to porn super fans, they're going to hold particularly kind of misogynistic and sexist, sexist attitudes. And what we find in our survey, and we asked four primary questions, which are also asked in the general social survey. So we were able to benchmark super fans against the general American population. And porn super fans actually hold more gender positive views about women and women's role within society as well. So, so I think that's a positive thing to take away. And I think within that, there, there's understandings of what consent actually means when they do come into a sexualized, I, I say leisure because I'm from Belfast, I don't say leisure. So it's a sexualized leisure space, uh, which is obviously hypersexualized. You know, when you come to here for the first time, as I did in 2015, uh, and about half of our respondents had, when we did our survey, it was their first time here. And I think when you come into a, a hypersexualized space like this for the first time, it can be overwhelming, it can be awe-inspiring, and nervousness, and you meet your favorite performer, and there is a notion of what we called in the paper tacit consent, because these guys are here to interact with their fans, but there's still boundaries, and you, if you move around, some performers are very interactive, you know, very hands-on, so to speak, and I was kind of watching yesterday one performer who was directing the whole intera interaction. Jimmy G took complete control, you know, of her interactions with her male fans. She didn't give them a chance to ask permission. She owned it big time. And I was like, you can touch me where I say you can touch me. And purposely put people, you know, on the part of her body where she, where she felt, obviously felt, felt comfortable with. Um, I think that the reason performers in the adult industry can be such experts on consent is because this is something that we navigate all the time. Like, this is what we do when we're at work, and this is when it begins. I was talking to Katie yesterday about this, and, I mean, 
for as long as I've been in the business, anytime I work with someone new, I always have that first meeting, right? Like, okay, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. You can do this to me. Don't ever do this to me. If you want to do this, let's discuss this. You know, I've always had those boundary and consent meetings. Um, but as far as uh, what Lynn was saying about how we can possibly be modeling this behavior for, for the general public, right? We're also talking about a segment of people who are watching porn with no context, who are watching porn with no real sex education growing up. So, I, and I don't think at all that the onus of responsibility to educate falls on performer shoulders at all whatsoever. I do also think that there are so many people that are getting sex education from porn, and they shouldn't be. We know they shouldn't be. Um, so as far as that, like I would also love to see people just better able to navigate porn in general and understand that what you're seeing on the screen is a polished fantasy and the performers have negotiated consent prior. And maybe if they understand that a little bit better, they'll understand why we are so competent and why we do negotiate consent so well. I'm curious. We, we talked a little bit about um, the institutional setting and you've talked about how you as individuals negotiate. Can, I mean, AVN a couple of years ago did these big signs and signed this form. Is that enough? I mean, could there be more, dare I ask this, institutional support to help you all? So I noticed immediately as soon as attendees had to sign a consent form, they became more aware of their behavior. I mean, that's human nature. We do it for a lot of things. As soon as you write down a list, like that becomes a thing to you. Um, as far as is it enough, I don't, I don't know that it's ever enough anywhere, right? Um, but that being said, I think it's definitely made a big difference the first time I walked in. And I mean, we have to sign them as well. We have to sign the codes of conduct as performers. I think that's a fantastic idea. And the first time I did that, and the first time I stood in line and showed my ID and signed the paper, I thanked Avian for doing that. I was like, thank you so much for putting this in place. This is going to be so helpful to us. Um, I also wish that there was some type of way. So Wicked Pictures just implemented a mandatory sexual harassment prevention online training program for anyone that's on our set whether they're crew, whether they're talent, they take an online course. Um, so we, we did that, and in doing that, we also have a way for folks to anonymously report a consent violation on set. So I wish that Avian or any place where adult performers were maybe had that ability, because sometimes multiple performers will notice that one particular fan has done it to many people or maybe they're trying to get away with it or maybe they've had a little too much to drink. So it would be really awesome if we had a way to report. I think that would be a great idea actually. Um, but going back on that, I was going to say another problem we have, the thing is with what we're doing here, it's, this is small scale and generally in society women's bodies are under such scrutiny and in public space, women's bodies are often perceived as public property. And the discourse is generally that if I, a woman, am out once the sun has set, um, after my curfew, you could argue, that my body is thus then public space, and whatever happens to me, she was asking for it. So what we're doing here, it's, it's setting a precedent, but on a very small scale, that hopefully 
I'm going back to what Jessica said, it's, it's creating mindfulness. You know, if you don't state, hey, please don't stalk me, people might not even realise not to stalk you. Um, but you do have to spell it out. And hopefully in time, we can hopefully create an influence that then people take, not just in the convention space, but outside of that space. Can I just follow up on that? I mean, one of the issues that we highlighted in the paper, and I've, I mean, as a researcher, I'm constantly kind of processing everything that happens in front of me as a kind of a form of data. What happens within the confines of the expo space and then what happens when performers come out of the expo space and they're going through the lobby, for example, in the rooms? There, there, there is, and Jessica mentioned this yesterday when we had a quick meeting and Katie as well, but from my observations as well, there's clearly another kind of what we call touristic gaze as opposed to sexuality gaze that happens within. And it's, I think it's normal casino attendees who don't come to the expo, they don't understand what the consensual boundaries are, I think, in some senses. So I'm not sure if the people that approach you when you're moving through outside the normal bounds of uh, the normal spaces of the casino, are they fans who are attending or are they just general punters who are here and you're getting kind of different types of reactions in some way? So predominantly, in my experience, I don't know about Katie, uh, they are fans because that's why they're here right now. Um, but at the same time, like may maybe they're not specifically a fan of mine who has just waited in a line to get an autograph. Maybe they're just adult fans in general um, and they just seize every opportunity to get closer to us in whatever way that looks like. Um, I've had people run into an elevator right before the doors close so that they could be in that elevator with me. And then, then I'm like, well, I can't get off at my floor. I can't do this, you know. We were joking yesterday, I put on, and I'm gonna out myself right now because I put on a New York baseball cap and dark sunglasses and I hug the side of the wall and I speed walk <laughs> like you see people doing in the mall. <laughs> like that's how I get through this casino, just to like, not make eye contact and just to get through. So, but I, it, it's a different type of attention than it is on the show floor for sure because they're like, oh, what are you doing in line at Dunkin' Donuts? What are you ordering? What's, what's your favorite coffee? What are you eating? Like, it's completely different. I think that's such a great question. It's such an important point. And I've heard a handful of stories about performers. Um, and actually, these were stories that were captured on the episode that um, Peep Show podcast did last year. And I want to give a shout out to them. It's a fantastic sex positive podcast. Listen to it, download it, subscribe to it. But there were stories that were shared on their AVN episode last year um, by uh, performers, camp performers in particular. And, and this particular woman shared several instances of being you know, really aggressively accosted on elevators. Like, we might not think about the dangers that elevators risk to performers. <laughs> I mean, performers know, right? But, like, maybe people who aren't kind of in the performer headspace don't think about the fact that there's the expo floor, there's the casino floor, and then there's the challenge of safely getting to wherever ever you're going, whether it's a party or your room. And, um, you know, this 
performer on this podcast was, you know, shared some stories that were frankly, you know, quite terrifying and could have ended, you know, um, in, in, you know, a physical assault or sexual assault even had it not been for bystander intervention or had it not been for a security guard intervening. And so um, space becomes really porous, like in the context of the expo, right? Like where somebody's desire to kind of interact with or meet a performer isn't confined just to the trade show floor. You know, there's the casino floor. There are those people that will stalk performers or who, after one too many drinks, is unable to process the boundary setting that is happening. So because of some of those things that Lynn is mentioning, I wear a personal security device on my finger. I'm going to tell you what it is. I don't get paid from them. (laughs) Um, It's called NIM. It's a ring. It also goes with an app. It's a tracking device. It has a panic button on it. You can link it to different rings. Like if your friend has a ring and you feel like you're in trouble, you hit the panic button, your friend's ring will vibrate. Or you can also program within the app to dispatch the authorities if that's what you choose or um, a trusted friend or something like that. So anytime I'm in a public space, this is one thing that I do to protect myself because the reality is, I mean, and just as a woman first, right, I'm still wearing this. But anytime I'm in a a public space as a performer at a trade show, I'm definitely wearing it. If I can just follow up on Barb's point about, I suppose, the the waiver and the signage, which is, you know, a really good start to things. I think what also is important to think about is the capacity, the ability the, uh, to report when incidents happen, and then enforcement. You know, so what does happen if somebody does transgress those boundaries? Because I think if, the, if effective enforcement action is taken and that so a person is caught and ejected from premises, and I think if there's like a kind of reporting at the end of the show to kind of say these are the type of incidents or the number of incidences that happen, that would build, I think, more confidence maybe with performers. And I'm framing that obviously as a question. See, this reminds me, um, I used to to be a student, um, a geography student at the University of Portsmouth. That's how Paul and I got in contact. And when I was at university, I uh, oversaw um, the Portsmouth branch of a website called iHollerback.org. And the one thing that we did was we mapped where incidents of catcalling, wolf whistling, any shape of harassment, how, no matter how big or small, happened to women on the streets. And we mapped it to look for patterns. Perhaps if we had something like that implemented at the trade shows, and from a geographical element, I'd love to, to map it perhaps where certain booths are, depending on the content they're putting out and the type of fans that may attract and to see if there's a correlation. I think that could be quite a fascinating insight when it comes to back to branding. Spoken, spoken like a true scholar. <laughs> Another life. <laughs> Now is a good time to hit the pause button and head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash peepshowpodcast. Even $1 a month shows us that you care and want to see Peep Show continue to thrive. Also, you can help increase our reach with a review on iTunes.
it is interesting to think about kind of the construction of space because one of the things that I noticed yesterday walking around the main trade show floor and um, talking with a friend of mine who was working for one of the camming companies is that this particular company had all their performers up on risers, like really up here. So I was like this, <laughs> trying to talk. I mean, really like my back arched, my neck craned. It was like not conducive to just having a simple hello, how are you conversation. And it was so different than previous years. And I, this is my 13th show. I've been coming for a long time. So I've seen the evolution of this trade show. And it immediately made us both think, you know, was this an actual physical intervention to kind of put performers up out of the way of grabby fans to create kind of more of a barrier to prevent those unwanted interactions you know and 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 maybe it was maybe it wasn't I mean it makes sense if if it was um but it really um it created challenges just for me to have a conversation and for them to have a conversation with me but um, I think that those types of institutional interventions can take many different forms. It can take a consent form that people are signing. It can be signage outside the trade show floor, or it can be an actual physical reconfiguration of the trade show floor to create conditions where performers feel safer and aren't as easy to access. That tall booth there can have an unintended consequence because it was so inaccessible that a performer actually had to come all the way down and get all the way away so that it left you more vulnerable if you actually wanted to interact with a fan, which is part of what you need to do. So it backfired. I mean, it could backfire in some ways. So um, in all of the years that I've been coming to the show, this is my 20th year in the business, and signing for Wicked, we always had our performers on risers, or we always had them a, a bit less accessible than just standing by a signing table on the floor. Um, and I'll speak briefly as to why, in my opinion, that's not being done as much, and it's, it's budget. It's the cost to a company to build that booth in order to keep those performers protected. Add on that and just say that's the consequence of free, uh, streaming free porn. Yes. Yeah, that's a ripple effect um, of what happens when you don't pay for your porn. It, it does affect everyone from performers in the front line to crew. The whole system collapses. Yeah, I mean, fascinating. I hadn't thought about it in terms of kind of just cost effectiveness. Interesting. Yeah, why don't we take the time that we have, and we have a little over 10 minutes, um, and there's a hand that shot up in the back. I see you, so please. Hello, uh, I want to thank all the panelists for being here. I do want to point out before I say this that I have to understand I have a privilege um, as a male, and a privilege as a big male. Um, I'm a new performer, and when I started coming to this industry, you know, I was really amazed at how cautious all the female performers had to be. You know, it's just not something that had occurred to me. I have, I have friends that it took them six, seven months before they trusted me with their real name um, because they, you can be in such danger in such crazy situations. And so one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about is we have this whole camming community that's coming online with young talent that what are we doing to educate them on protecting themselves online? Within the avian space, there are so many safeguards and social expectations and security 
that, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it's safer. Nothing's ever safe. But what, are, what can we do as performers to help these women protect themselves online? Because a lot of them don't know that they have the right to say no. That just because that they're performing, the power's in their hands. It's informed consent. You know, and so I, I tell every cis male, if you want to understand informed consent, go into a gay bar. That's... Uh, so that's it. Thank you um, for your comments and for your questions and also welcome to the business. I think that because the business has been through so many changes so rapidly over the years, we are left with this space, this a few new generations even of performers that don't have the resources or the tools or even the, the presence or awareness yet to understand bodily autonomy. So I think that when we're talking about that, like we have to take a broader look at the bigger picture um, and realize that much more education is needed in that area overall. Um, but if we zoom in, I would say that one thing that we could do, like an actionable thing that we could all do, is talk to newer performers, even if we're just saying it to one person or two people or a handful of people, or if we're putting it on, out on our social media, sort of reminding them that they are the ones in control. And to me now, that seems like a really obvious thing, but it's definitely not something that I came into my sexuality understanding, right? So everybody's at a different spot, and I think people just need to be reminded that they are in control of their bodies. Can I, can I just add to that? Um, sexologist, sex therapist, Dr. David Lay, recently did a, a video for, I think it was Strip Chat or one of the forums, and he was looking at self-care and well-being, and it was particularly geared towards the CAM community, basically. So I think there's public service announcement video type stuff that can be done, and David and, and others are, are, are kind of in that space. But I also think, you know, there's opportunity here for performers to do similar stuff. And you only need like one, one minute little clips on your Twitter feed or your Instagram video feed as well, basically, just to kind of highlight these particular issues. As long as you use hashtags, which Instagram and others allow you to hashtag and that they come up and feed. So we have to be creative about which ones we actually use. Not, not too porny because they won't let you bloody use them. There's uh, one other thing I want to add to say, not to put everything on the performer's responsibility, but I'm involved in this an another research study where we did a big survey of clients of sex workers and compared with a similar study in the UK, and we've got a book coming out in a, uh, a month or so called Paying for Sex in the Digital Age. Uh, but one of the important things we found that in the UK, where there's a lot of online sex work still going on because they didn't have SESTA-FOSTA, that there are some platforms where clients interact with each other that are being a little more proactive in educating clients and consumers in how to interact appropriately. And that is another thing that could be the responsibility of platforms to do. Can I add on that? There's a, a really amazing organization I'm a big fan of called Pineapple Supports. And they're very, I, I love them, and they're very eager to make sure that performer mental health is you know, the forefront of their priority. And any support the greater public could make to give towards them, give them 
some attention would be wonderful, and um, I'm sure they would happily implement perhaps doing a video like that in terms of how to respect a cam performer in a cam room. And I, I really appreciate that the first question um, came from a man because we did have a, a male performer on the panel, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to make it. And I think hearing you know men talk about consent um, and how they navigate consent is crucial. You know, just absolutely crucial. Another hand up here. I'm wondering how you go about having the consent conversation without coming off as like abrasive or maybe aggressive, especially like in this space where like we want to be viewed as accessible and friendly and positive. Just having that conversation without it almost being like a negative or making assumptions about people. So I think that every time we negotiate consent here in this space with fans, we're sort of doing it on a continuum, right? And we're doing it sort of depending on what's happening, how their attitude is, how they're approaching us, how safe we feel, where are we, what time of day is it, what are we doing? So those are all like different variables in this equation. I think the best thing that we can do is to just be direct. And if they take your being direct as being a bitch or being abrasive or being, that's too bad. You're protecting yourself and setting boundaries for yourself. And that's it. Because no amount of bullshit that you're going to put up with is going to be worth it. Our fans know us, you know, if you follow us online, they have a sense of your personality, your brand. Uh, I'm very fortunate that the fans I've attracted are super respective, uh, respectful, and I also want to, in defense of fans, I just want to say that majority, 99.9% of the people I meet here are phenomenal, because there are peers, we're like-minded community who are sexually liberated and just here to celebrate the most natural, beautiful art form that is a natural high from sex. You know, and it's that 0.0111% that ruins it for the rest of us. Other questions? Yeah, just a, just a quick one. Is anybody showing the Porn 101 videos at all that uh, AIM used to have? And I'm thinking that um, the uh, Performers Association would be a good place to create various videos that deal with topics exactly like this. Do you, do you happen to know if uh, a... Uh, APAC is planning to do that? So APAC has done some performer videos and I believe that Lotus Lane is starting sort of a, a program for newer performers. So that would definitely be something to look for. Um, um, you know, you guys come for the fans and the fans come for you guys. So with that in mind, do you think that the fans come because they think that their fantasies will come true here? or for something else. That question's obviously not for me because <laughs> I'm not in the industry, you know. So I will defer to my esteemed colleagues to the left and right. So I think it's, I think it's probably a mix, right? I think that the majority of people that I've met, men and women that are coming to shows to meet me, um, they've watched my movies, they're, they're super fans, right? They just want to see me in person. Like, they want to hear how I really am. They want to watch me, my, my, my actual mannerisms, not the characters that I'm playing in a movie. Do I think that they're also hoping their fantasy will come true? Absolutely. Completely. Um, and even though, like, I mean, I, I might hold the same fantasy about a celebrity that I would hope to meet one day, but that doesn't mean I'm going to put my hands on them without consent. 
right? And I think that it is sort of what we do and the fact that we are naked and that's how people see us and maybe they think that they have a better chance of having that fantasy come true. And I'm not saying that no one at a show ever hooks up with a fan. I'm not saying that either. So fantasies do come true sometimes. <laughs> a little, if I could... Essentially. Yeah. If I could, if I could add to this, though, in a way, in terms of the fantasy becoming as close to reality as possible, so Jessica and others, for example, have flashlights. And if you're engaged in VR porn, okay, and you put the goggles on and you put a flashlight on, that's the closest in a, you know, in a virtual reality sense that your fantasy is real, that you you have been intimate with Jessica Drake or whatever other performers have a flashlight. So there's a, way, there's a way of kind of conceiving this in terms of realizing fantasy as a form of reality. We probably have time for one more quick question. Um, yes, right there. Hi, thank you so much. Um, you had mentioned kind of loosely barriers, financial barriers to your, your physical security, primarily, I would assume, from the companies that you work for. How can that change? Because that's safety, right? We're in a big space. Like I, in my mind, when I hear that, I'm like, well, that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that doesn't sound like, you know, there's security guards here and these kinds of things. I'm just curious how we could change that for performers. I'm gonna chime in and say pay for your porn. It's something I can't stress enough. And I'm sure a lot of people over the years have noticed that a lot of big companies have gone under. And it's because of the change in the way we consume pornography. And I think generally the consensus is that under 35 age group have never paid for porn. And I think the idea of it is absurd. Um, so support your performers, support the companies, anything you can do to help contribute to them. It will have a, a very positive ripple effect onto the rest of us. And support if your favorite performer has a subscription platform, invest in it, support them. Even if it's $1 you're donating a month, you know, you can help them pay for their own security or for the ring that Jessica has. Little things make a big difference. I think that's a great place to end. And, um, you know, I'm sure many of you might have questions. You might be able to grab one of the panelists and ask them. Um, there is 10 minutes before the next panel starts. I hope you stick around. It's a performer-oriented panel. I'm sure it's going to be terrific, but it, the 10-minute breaks gives people like Jessica time to catch her breath before she jumps on the next panel. But thank you so much, everyone in the audience, for taking time to come and listen to this. Uh Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of the Peep Show podcast. I'm PJ Sage, and you can find me on Twitter at Peach Sage. And I'm Jesse Sage, and you can find me on Twitter at sapiotextual or at jessiesage.com. We would like to remind you that we have a Patreon account and would appreciate your support. Please visit patreon.com slash peepshowpodcast. Our music is courtesy of Joe Kennedy. The show was produced by Jesse and PJ Sage. Signing off. Have a great week.